Hi, and welcome to Your Owen Podcast, a podcast for the Ontario Animal Health Network. I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, coordinator for the Ontario Animal Health Network, and today we're joined by Dr. Glenn Dyser, veterinary epidemiologist uh, within the Chief Veterinary Office for the Pre- Province of Manitoba. Um, Glenn, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. The reason we've asked Glenn uh, to speak with us today um, is that with regards to porcine epidemic diarrhea, because Manitoba has been, uh, been through a, an, uh, an outbreak of PED, and we thought we would give, in addition to the update given by Dr. Chris Byra, we would give um, a different kind of, a different lens to the, um, to the outbreak that's happening right now. So, um, Glenn, we're thrilled to have you here, and I wondered if you could give us an update on the number of positive cases in Manitoba to date. Sure. <clears throat> so to date, we have 80 positive premises, uh, swine premises in, in southeastern Manitoba. Uh, 25 of those are sow operations, 16 are nurseries, and 39 are finishers. Um, it is in an area of southeastern Manitoba bordered by um, uh, south of TransCanada Highway, uh, the TransCanada Highway. Um, east of Provincial Highway 75, that's a major highway between Winnipeg and the U.S. border, uh, north of the U.S. border and on the eastern boundary, it is, uh, this area is west of what's known as the Sandylands Provincial Forest. So if anybody's interested in looking on a map, you'll get a pretty good idea of where the outbreak was, was centered. Um, it is Probably the most, well, it is the most swine dense area in Manitoba, if not all of Western Canada. Uh, during our outbreak, we had 1.4 million pigs in this area under surveillance in 11 high risk buffer areas. Um, those buffer areas, within those buffers areas and within that 1.4 million pigs, there was 116, just over 116,000 sows with uh, almost 77,000 of them on infected premises. Wow. The good news, yes, wow, it was, it was a rather large population that we had uh, uh, under surveillance uh, and, and especially managing the risks in the, in the buffer areas. Um, the good news is we've had no new cases since October 24th, so we're almost three full, or four full weeks past our last case, so we've got our fingers crossed. Um, uh, on further good news, all but two of our sow barns have reached what we call a transitional status, which means they are consistently producing negative pigs. They're still working on cleanup, um, in, especially inside the dry sow and gestation, but in, in many cases uh, they've been able to produce piglets uh, on a regular basis now, in some cases for months, uh, without having uh, PED spread from the farm. Well, that's great. Okay, so it's getting under control. Yeah, we, we believe it's getting under control. We, we know that our nurseries and finishers are in a similar transitional status. We've got about half of them there as well, um, where they no longer have previously positive pigs on site, and they're actually working to get themselves cleaned up. Further to that, five of those transitional sow barns and 10 of those, um, 10 of those transitional nurseries and two of the transitional finishers have gone the rest of the way to reach presumptive negative status, which means all pigs, pig contact areas, staff areas um, are negative for PED and have been negative for PD for at least 30 days. So they've basically restocked uh, if you're a nursery finisher and have not had the disease rebreak. In Manitoba, presumptive what pres- 
presumptive negative does mean that we consider the manure storage and handling to be positive for PED. It's the only area in the premises that we uh, consider to be positive for PED, but we recognize those as separate uh, compared to farms that have never had PED. And we, we do that just so we, we don't believe the risk is great around manure, but we certainly want to recognize that we know the virus can live there for multiple seasons. So we just want to be able to recognize that and, and be able to address it if the need arises. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, and so I guess one of the questions that we wanted to ask as an Ontario organization was, what have you learned through this process, and are there any new tips that we in Ontario can take away from Manitoba's experience? Well, first of all, we really um, we we are are certainly are are at the time we were very uh, um, um, concerned for Ontario when PED um, hit the province uh, significantly back in 2014. Um, we definitely learned a lot from Ontario, and we appreciate that. We had regular involvement with veterinarians from Ontario, as well as endemic areas in the U.S. during this outbreak, providing us with advice, and that advice was very, very valuable. Um, there are some things that we did different and some things that were the same and a few different things that we learned. I would, I would just caution everyone to say that um, we had some different experiences. Some of that might be uh, geographic. Some of it might be cultural. Some of it might be... Um, the different types of systems that we have in Manitoba. We have a lot less farrow to finish operations and a lot more multi-site production. So that certainly played a factor in it. But anyway, um, I've got quite a list. I'll try to go through them r relatively, uh, uh, relatively quickly and hopefully provide what, what we understand uh, we found different during the outbreak. Um, we tracked all positive premises separately regardless of what systems they were part of. Uh, and so if a, if a sow barn became infected, we didn't treat that as, a, as a, a single infected system. We tracked all the subsequent premises that became infected from that sow barn. And we found that very valuable because um, it allowed us to establish buffer area surveillance because we had some evidence of area spread, which I'll get to a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, but it also allowed us to address the, the risk of disease uh, spread better, especially through indirect contacts, such as staff movements or shared staff movements, service personnel, dead stock pickup, feed delivery, garbage pickup, manure application, the whole list, because we realized that in many cases, even though the system itself could be considered infected, there was often different, because they're multi-site production, there were different service providers, um, different feed delivery, um, definitely different garbage pickup, uh, that, um, that, that service those areas, so it was more important for us to treat them by a prem premises by premises. So we, we actually tracked them that way. Um, we conducted five kilometer buffer area surveillance around all positive farms, usually weekly, um, <clears throat> and it, we really just scaled that back about four to five weeks ago. Um, and the, the reason, the distance is somewhat arbitrary. We can't say for sure that, that five kilometers is too little or too much. But it, you know, from our previous experience going back to 2014 and 2015, and certainly with this outbreak, we found that that was roughly the right, um, the right distance to be conducting surveillance. And it, um, um, 
it allowed us to detect and respond to spread locally or by area spread um, in a rapid fashion by having that surveillance ongoing. Uh, I would add to that briefly though, uh, very quickly we stopped doing that in cell barns because frankly um, the clinical signs were usually evident in the piglets prior to us getting any surveillance samples back. Uh, mm -hmm. So if we were even on a weekly basis, uh, we didn't find much use in, in doing it in cell barns, uh, but we definitely found use in the nursery and finishers to have them in a buffer area surveillance program. Okay, and, and when you say you guys were doing surveillance, were you swabbing, neg like uh, were you doing, uh, what kind of samples were you taking and what kind of numbers were you talking? Right, so we, we basically, oh, then, the, the numbers they peaked at about um, 15 to 1800 samples per week, mm. and uh, those samples they would be represented represented by. Uh, we used five again a somewhat arbitrary uh, sampling procedure, but for each mixed group um, we would uh, uh, sample five pools of five uh, fecals. Those could be those could be rectal swabs or pooled fecals um, uh, from from fresh floor collection uh, as randomly as possible across the, uh, across the, the group. Um, so in those, we, we really viewed it at the barn level. So in a multi-barn finisher operation, we would take five, bar, uh, five pools of uh, five samples from each barn on the operation. So if it was a four barn operation, they would submit 20 samples per week. Um, if it was a two-barn operation, obviously it would be 10 samples per week. We realized there could be some segregation uh, between rooms that could affect the sensitivity of the sampling, but we did, in the end, we really did not find that that type of segregation was, was important. We found it more important to deal with barn-to-barn uh, -barn segregation. Uh, once you're within, within a barn, frankly, this virus spreads quite rapidly, <laughs> which is probably obvious to a, a lot of veterinarians in Ontario. Uh, so we didn't feel the need to do any further level of sampling on a room-by-room -room basis. Okay, great. We also conducted rapid surveillance on any high-risk contact to positive farms, so that was essentially the downstream movement of any animals or shared staff. We viewed those as the higher-risk one. We initially start once. We initially started um, following up on feed trucks and transports. Um, but quickly realized, one, that was overwhelming, overwhelming our uh, surveillance system and our lab uh, for the gain that we were getting from it. So we focused a, a lot more on where we saw the risk happening. Uh, and in particular, that was, that was definitely direct animal movements, but we also had some shared staff situations that um, led to disease spread, so we uh, were quick to follow up on those. One of the advantages for doing that is even notifying a farm that they were downstream from a positive farm allowed them to implement biocontainment in a hurry, even if they hadn't gotten their results back yet. So for farms that ended up being negative, it was great. But even more importantly, for farms that ended up being positive, we got probably anywhere between one and three days of additional biocontainment um, prior to lab results. And that was very, very helpful from our standpoint. So doing a rapid follow-up and getting in touch with those people and say, hey, you're at risk, lock down, 
um, that really, I think that played a big role on the subsequent downstream positive farms and preventing them from spreading it further. So one of the other things that we found uh, advantage, we think, time will tell I guess, we spent a lot of time doing biosecure routing and dedicated positive negative uh, um, transport, or sorry, separation of, of a lot of different service provision into positive and negative. Um, so one, we did a lot of mapping and routing to say here's probably the best routes to avoid any spread. And mm -hmm. two, with a lot, of, a lot of help and a lot of operational um, uh, uh, effort on behalf of uh, different stakeholders, we, we saw transport get segregated, we saw dead stock get segregated, we saw feed get segregated, um, <clears throat> and finally manure application get segregated between infected and negative sites. And I'll touch a little bit more on that later, but we think that also played a significant role in mitigating the, uh, the spread of the disease. Um, we also thought you know, of all the farms in southeastern Manitoba, we certainly had a pocket of them that remained, well, not a pocket, but a, a, actually a distribution of them that remained negative. And we followed up with them doing a, a negative premises survey. So we're still actually completing that because it takes a fair bit of time to get in touch with all of the, um, all of the individuals involved. Um, but one of the things, one of the preliminary findings that we got out of that was many of the producers that had farms that stayed, or herds that stayed negative throughout the entire out outbreak implemented what I've been calling a wartime biosecurity. And it is pretty impressive to see what they have done on the farm level. And I'm sure this happened in Ontario too, but essentially um, separate parking uh, sites away from the barn, um, complete shoe changes, disinfection between for staff to cross from where their vehicles were parked to the barn door, and then a full change again, not closed mind you, but a full shoe change when they get into to walk into the barn, then a full shower uh, and close and uh, close and uh, sorry, dedicated clothes and footwear as they walked into the barn. So essentially we're talking about three, Danish entrances, one at the outside of the CAZ, one at the entrance of the, of the actual uh, doorway to the barn, and then the final one as they moved into the shower and came through the shower. So it was pretty impressive just for the staff movement in and the level of control that was implemented on, on those farms. There was also a lot of other additional things they did uh, around feed delivery, um, even though they were on dedicated negative feed delivery, they also added in pieces to that. There was a lot of scrutiny of transport that was coming in to, to pick up pigs or deliver pigs to their sites. Um, the, there was a lot of extra effort and scrutiny put on those trucks when they were coming in to deliver. There was a lot of care taken at the loadouts um, to, because that was another risk factor that we identified. Uh, to make sure that there was uh, as much as possible a lot of decrease of risk of the virus being able to come in through, through, um, through the loadout areas. Mm -hmm. And I, I, our initial view of the negative farms was those were the things that they did, they, they put a lot of emphasis on. When we get a little bit further into the analysis of this, this, 
analysis of this survey, we hopefully will, will gain a little bit more insight into uh, what they've done to keep themselves negative. Because make no mistake, we have seen farms that were completely surrounded by PED positive farms that have not breaked, not broken and with the disease, and it's, um, it, we have to give them some credit for that because they obviously put in a great deal of effort in order to keep the disease out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see in your survey what ends up being what they did differently to keep the disease out and stay disease-free. Yeah. And they're like I, a little we're, island, a little, a little disease-free island. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it's, uh, some of them had, uh, um, had, had experienced disease issues in the past, and uh, we're very keen on not <laughs> having those issues in the future so, uh, or during this outbreak. So they put a lot of effort in, into that. Um, three final different things, and I've touched on them uh, uh, a little bit. Um, I wanted to, to touch on them uh, a little bit more here. And the first one was dead stock was an interesting issue for us. Because I think in Ontario, and again, uh, I can be corrected here, but I think an on-site burial was, a, was an option that could be used in many of the infected farms in Ontario. In southeastern Manitoba, this option was very limited to one area. For any of those that have seen the maps, it's pretty much limited to buffer area one and two. And even then, on the eastern section of buffer area two, it was, uh, was an issue. In the rest of our major high-risk buffer areas, um, we had uh, clay overlaid with sand, overlaid with water, which is impossible to actually bury anything on from an environmental standpoint. Uh, so we ended up dealing with a lot of dedicated um, collection through covered bins or dedicated transport of dead stock. And thankfully, we're about 45 minutes away from uh, the main biological materials area of the city of Winnipeg's largest landfill. And we were able to use that for a reasonable price, or the farms were able to use that for a reasonable price to handle their dead stock. Um, <clears throat> and we did that because we felt that it was important to keep the dead stock out of uh, the rendering system. Um, not so much that we didn't, we were, had concerns about the rendering process, but the very pickup, delivery, and crossover at the rendering plants themselves, the rendering plant itself, was a concern for us. So we, we, we had a lot of uh, agreement across the industry to say, yep, we agree, and we're going to keep the dead stock from these operations uh, out of the rendering system, and we were able to do that um, through the City of Winnipeg landfill. Cool. Uh, a similar approach was taken with cull sows. Um, we have the two largest assembly yard companies, three of the, the three largest assembly yards in Western Canada, um, two of which are in southeastern Manitoba. Um, and those companies really bent over backwards um, to help the sow barns that were affected move their sows once they were non-shedding or non-shedding, uh, at least past the clinical signs, moved them direct to slaughter into the U.S. So they arranged um, transport and pickup direct from the farms. Often they were shuttled to try to control some of the contamination. Um, and then moved those sows, assembled and moved those sows direct from the sow barns to U.S. slaughter. Um, so we recognize that our assembly yards, like some of the ones in Ontario, are contaminated for PED 
but we decided not to, collectively decided not to contaminate them any further because those yards were also receiving naive sows and we figured that if they crossed over, we'd end up having two additional kind of virus plumes around our two big assembly yards. So we took the, the, this approach and that we also think that certainly helped us uh, control the disease a, a little bit. And again, a similar approach was taken with manure application. I kind of touched on this earlier, but essentially same idea. We viewed the greatest risk, um, not so much from the manure itself, but the contamination of manure application equipment. So throughout August, September, and October of this year, uh, and this was really, we, reckon we had some input into it, but really was the industry themselves that stepped back and said, we're going to have negative and positive manure application. And so, uh, and they were able to do that right through the entire manure application season so that they, we had completely segregated manure application happening from positive farms and from negative farms. I guess one of the advantages of having multiple positive farms, if there is such an advantage, is that there was enough business to actually have three if not four complete companies dedicated to spreading manure from hmm. positive sites. So. Um, wow. It was in the uh, hundreds of millions of gallons, uh, so it was uh, um, a lot of infected manure uh, that was spread. So because there was enough of them, uh, we were able to have uh, some companies step forward and say, right, we'll take it on, we'll do it. So wow. um, that was, that was some, some advantages that we, that we encountered. Sometimes and I think in, economy in future outbreaks, <laughs> even with other diseases, if that option, option exists, I would, I would recommend it. I think every one of these little things that we're able to do to kind of, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an attrition thing. There's no one big thing I view looking at this disease now that we could do. There's a few big things, but it's these, these not necessarily smaller, but these, these um, different segments that we can actually plug in and say, if we can decrease the risk here, then we decrease the risk then, it's, then it in itself is not contributing to a greater risk that could spread the disease either within systems or across, um, across uh, multiple systems. So that's a super, that's a really super tip. I think they could probably be applied to just about any infectious disease. It isn't always the big things. It's often just the small things and paying attention to the little tiny things that help to decrease risk overall. That's really good. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's, you know, honestly, it's, it's outbreak management 101, but uh, it, it's hard when you're, that old saying, when you're up to your neck in, in you know, in a flood, it's sometimes hard to, to look for all the little things that, uh, uh, that might be able to mitigate that a little bit. And I think with enough of us working on it across both the industry, the Manitoba Pork Council, and, and us with the provincial government, we were able to have enough eyeballs and enough uh, opportunities to identify those different things and enough collaboration to enact them, to make them, to make them happen. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's hard to turn to a, dead st to a rendering company and say, we'd like you to do uh, uh, dedicated uh, dead stock pickup. And they would say, you know, the typical thing would be, well, how are we going to do that and how do we map these sites and how do we know which site to go to and when and follow up? We were able to do a lot of that through geospatial mapping and, and because we were able to track all those individual premises. So when we could go to them and say, we can provide you with a map and we can show you uh, what we think is the best route to take 
and we've got the, you know, the owners and the systems on side with that, then it made it a lot easier for them to say, right, we're going to split our trucks into two. We've got negative and we've got positive. The positive is going to go here and the negative is going to go there. And it, mm -hmm. it, I think if we weren't able to do that, then, then those companies wouldn't be able to implement that kind of control. So. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if there were any, so if you wanted to kind of drive home any risk factor points and how they've been addressed, um, what would you, what would your response be for um, looking at looking at reducing risk? Yes. So there's lots, but I'm going to cover uh, a few that we we identified. In particular, um, I, I'm going to touch on feed. Uh, um, I'm going to um, talk a lot about transport as our initial risk. Um, and then actually direct animal movements, once the outbreak got rolling, direct animal movements, shared staff, and area spread as, uh, uh, as kind of the three big ones that we saw happening during the outbreak. And then the final piece I'm going to talk about is a little bit of um, ongoing or long-term shedding that we experienced uh, during our outbreak. Um, <clears throat> and some of the interesting things, including uh, quite a few additional positive premises that that led, uh, that that led to. So the first for us was we were able to do some preliminary follow-up, not to the level that all of us are happy with. We'd like to do, we, we certainly have plans to do a little bit more, but feed does not appear to be a significant issue in this outbreak. Feed delivery, maybe, um, and it's certainly one of those frequent contact situations where it could be one of the issues that, um, um, that uh, contribute to the movement of the disease. Uh, and we certainly had some patterns that would support the, the idea that feed delivery would play a role in it. But the feed itself and the delivery system overall was not what, at this stage, I would say, not one of our biggest risks associated with the outbreak, although we still have a little bit of, well, we actually have a fair bit of work that we would like to do on that, on that area. So I think that's significantly different than what happened in Ontario. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the investigation suggests that our initial spark um, probably was more due to frequent transport contact at the affected premises. Um, so that's just, there's some of these big operations are moving pigs every day, and those transport pigs are coming day after day after day, and that alone is a risk. Add into that that um, a lot of, we have a very, um, a very big isoene system here that moves piglets into the U.S. market. We also have, as I mentioned earlier, two of the three largest uh, cull cell assembly yards in Manitoba are in the southeastern area, and they move constantly um, three, four times a week into packing plants into the U.S., so we're always getting contact into endemic areas. So we have a lot of um, potential contamination. We know that our high-traffic sites the, with U.S. contact our assembly yards in particular are contaminated for PED. Um, <clears throat> and so we had a lot of exposure. And I think we, what we found is that if there was a, well, in, our, in this initial case, it's that type of contact um, where we had some glitches on the transport biosecurity and some glitches on the loadout biosecurity on a couple of these farms that probably triggered the disease going into those farms. Once they got in there and got rolling, we dealt with, uh, we dealt with I think, some different factors that moved it in the area. Um, but just to, to go back to that a little bit, 
what that has led, I mean, we, we have our two big assembly yards in southeastern Manitoba. We have to you know, work around them. They're a very important part, and we, they're, they're a very important part of the business. Um, but what we've done, as a, well, collectively done as a, as a response to this, is we now have dedicated coal cell transport lines that are those transport trucks really do nothing else but move coal cells. Um, and on the rare occasion that they do come out, they are going through a full cleaning, washing, disinfection, um, and then testing to determine if they're negative for PED. And we're trying to get and build in more downtime onto that as well. Um, we also had a little bit of a um, whichever trucker wanted to choose the route route. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we also had to deal with spring weight restrictions. We could change our route completely, uh, especially for these cull sow movements. So we're, we have found the lowest, r lowest risk route for the highest risk transport. Uh, and we're hoping to work with our Department of Transportation, um, and our transporters are already on side, to basically maintain that route year-round so that everybody knows that this is a route that cull sows move on on a regular basis all the time. It never varies. And we are we're pretty close to getting that done, and we certainly maintained it throughout the entire outbreak, and I think the plan is to keep it that way um, uh, as long as, as possible, even right through, even to get special amendments for our spring weight restrictions to allow those trucks to stay on that route um, right through uh, March, April, and May when we deal with uh, transport restrictions. So um, we're working on that. Um, we've also seen farms really focus on the loadout where when we looked at biosecurity, there was issues around loadout where you could see equipment uh, cleaning disinfection equipment dragged back and forth. One of the other things that we noted is often loadout doors would be thrown open in the in the summertime, and uh, uh, especially if they're waiting for a truck to back up or something like that. And if you've got multiple fans blowing air out of a barn, then this is a huge area to suck air back into a farm. And we think that that led to some contamination, especially was out on the loading dock. Um, and so there's been a lot of emphasis on how do we deal with those loading docks a little bit better. Uh, and we've certainly seen some movement towards dedicated cleaning uh, equipment for the loadouts alone. Um, and I, we're, we're, we think that that will play a role in, in preventing the introduction into, uh, into the whole area again. Um, <clears throat> I think the final thing that we found is that um, an increase in transport cleaning and disinfection, specifically adding in um, transport thermo disinfection, or otherwise known as baking, um, that ensures transport receive. Um, and I'm going to spend a little bit of a minute on this because mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of misconception about what baking is. Um, our work. Um, our work with some of those that have gone in and done a little bit more uh, research on this, not us, but those that have worked with the transport companies, uh, where we are at this stage, if it's going to be effectively thermo-disinfected, um, it really needs to be at 15 minutes at, or sorry, for 15 minutes at 72 degrees Celsius in all areas of the transport trailer. This is not drying. This is actually 72 degrees Celsius is really quite warm, 
and we can't go any hotter than that because that starts to put risk on, on trailer electrical and uh, uh, hydraulics. Mm -hmm. um, but we have found that this is not something you miss. You make sure that it's all areas of the trailer reach that temperature um, and that uh, it needs to be, we, we think we saw some slide back where 72 degrees Celsius became 65 and 15 minutes became 10. And our, where we are now, um, uh, what we understand is the baking bays in, in Manitoba are all running same time frame at the same temperature. And I think that this might have been a bit of a learning situation for us. We do believe that baking will help, but it's got to be at the right temperature and the right time. And in the past, I think um, that slipped a little bit, and I, uh, I think that we've made the correction as a result of this outbreak. And it may have been things like that that, that allowed the disease to get itself into this pocket of southeastern Manitoba. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, and there are some, uh, some others that have done some ad hoc experience in the U.S. with baking and have come up to the same conclusion that it's that this is probably the right time and the right temperature. Um, and ensuring that it happens across the entire trailer is those three key things are important. Uh, and I, so I think that's one of the take-home message that we, we have and certainly dealing with our major transporter out here, that was a take-home message for them and they spend a lot of time now validating that their baking bays, is, baking bays are working at that, uh, meeting those kind of three criteria. Okay, great. Um, okay, anything else that you'd like to share as far as uh, risk, risk um, issues or anything else that we can take home in Ontario? Well, I think um, the one of the, the main things that we found probably, uh, well, not probably, approximately 30 of our 80 positive farms were a result of direct animal movement. So that, again, kind of disease outbreak 101. We all worry about biosecurity and staff and, and showering and all this kind of out, those kind of issues, and those are all really important. But in this outbreak, movement of animals actually spread the disease. That really should be a no-duh, <laughs> but, but it is actually one of the, uh, um, it was really emphasized in this outbreak. And again, as you might have heard me, as I said earlier, these operations were shipping pigs on some of these big sow barns on a daily basis. And those, those movements would happen before clinical signs would, would be found, and that disease was downstream in a hurry. Um, it is a major challenge because a lot of this in Manitoba's multi-site production, we don't have a lot of additional capacity to hold on to pigs any length of time. Um, and so I think where we are at this stage, having you know, talked to some within the industry and some of the veterinarians involved in these outbreaks, they're looking at it more as can we do more uh, internal biocontainment on a regular basis so that if we do get a positive room in a sow barn, shipping to a barn in a nursery, can we try to keep that contained to those areas inside, the, uh, inside of each of those premises uh, and limit it so that we, um, uh, we, we don't get the outbreak, outbreak um, of, a, of any disease moving as quickly. I, don't get me wrong, I don't think they're trying just to contain it entirely into those uh, given areas on each one of those types of premises, but they do realize that internal biocontainment, at least what they're feeding back to us, 
is internal biocontainment has a lot of advantages, and this might be one of them, where we can't do anything right away to stop that pipeline of animal movement, but if we have some good internal biocontainment, it probably will mitigate the impact of it. So I think that's one of the things that, we've, uh, that we learned uh, from this, and we'll see as we, get, as we um, you know, start going through more of the information that we've collected and, and get it analyzed. Um, second one, uh, shared staff. This was a bit of a surprise for us, but multiple, especially for weekends, couple big finisher operations within the same system, cover off weekends by having staff cross over between the operations. That was a significant situation for several of our positive farms. Probably was one of the key ways that it had spread from farm, again, prior to clinical signs, but that those staff are going back and forth. And even if they are doing good biosecurity, um, something like PED can certainly find a hole in, in you know, a basic biosecurity plan. So we were very much about saying to producers during the outbreak, if you have shared staff, it's probably time to, to try to mitigate that. Um, and the second thing we've been saying as a result of that is to say to producers, <clears throat> it's really good to have a farm level emergency plan to implement uh, things like a wartime biosecurity, but in that probably would be, um, do you have additional staff resources that you can apply to your operations such that if you find yourself in the middle of an outbreak, whether you're positive or negative, you can apply those additional resources to make sure you can do segregation between premises and ideally between barns on premises. Um, and that's one of the key messages that we're trying to send out because we think that that played a significant um, factor in disease spread. Final thing for us that's probably a big difference than, than what we heard from Ontario was area spread. Um, Southeast Manitoba is very flat with limited ground cover. There's a lot of cropland and it can be very dusty and windy in the summertime. Um, and we investigated several uh, premises that had no known or obviously obvious linkages to other positive farms. Um, and we're cautious about this because this is uh, one of those things where we look at this and say, you got to rule out everything else before you go down this road. Um, but we had the advantage of having extensive weather data around these sites and um, uh, wind information and wind patterns and the timing of infection linked to peak shedding at another positive site um, really strongly suggest that several of our cases were a result of, of area spread through wind. Uh, we have some more work to do on that, but that's certainly where we are right now, and um, uh, certainly the, the perception of, uh, of both the producer, producers and our, our swine veterinarians in this area, um, they agree. They, they see this as a potential, uh, one of the potential risk factors in, in this, uh, in this um, uh, outbreak. I would say, though, that doesn't mean you throw up your hands and, and uh, say, oh, well, we can't do anything about the wind. Our real sense is that this landed the virus on the ground or put it up against the walls of the barn or against the entryways of the barn and that it still was biosecurity that was important to prevent it from in, uh, entering into, into the barn. So we recognize that wind is a factor, but we're not saying that wind is blowing it right into the pig's mouth. What mm -hmm. we're saying yeah. is that it's putting it on the premises and it's putting that pressure right up against the barn door, right up against the intake vents right up against the loadouts, um, and that if there's one little miss, 
that's certainly an opportunity for it to, to come into the barn. And certainly makes me think of those, uh, those barns that didn't, those operations that didn't get PED, so there was something different about what they did. That's correct, and that's yeah. why we're looking at putting those two pieces together. We're thinking mm -hmm. perhaps there's something there as to why those barns uh, that stayed negative uh, in spite of windy, and, uh, windy conditions uh, and facing the same conditions some of their neighbors did ended up staying, staying negative. If, if we think if they had that additional biosecurity in place, it might have been uh, enough to keep them from introducing the disease. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember this, a similar discussion around avian influenza spread, totally different species obviously, but when that outbreak happened in the United States, um, there was a very similar discussion about the proximity of corn and the, the airflow and that kind of, and the, you know, the wind carrying some of that um, infectious material. So it's interesting that that always comes back into play. Well, and I had a barn manager, just a thing I'll relate to the veterinarians that are listening to this podcast. I, I talked to a herd veterinarian and the barn manager, and the barn manager telling me that it was 25 to 30 degrees Celsius, all his three-stage fans on his cell barn were running full speed. And he said, when you rolled up the door on that loadout, you were standing in a windstorm coming mm. into you. He said, there's no amount of fans that you could use to create negative pressure inside that loadout. Um, and he was looking across the yard at his, like, across the mile uh, quarter section at neighboring barns that were all infected for PED. And he was basically saying to us, tell me that didn't come <laughs> from them. Now, there probably was other factors with that. But, yeah. I, I mean, it's an interesting, um, uh, an interesting experience that he relayed to us. He said, you know, I have to open the loadout door on my barn every day to move out piglets. And when I do that, um, there is this rush of windstorm uh, and dust coming against, coming against my barn. And I thought that was an interesting uh, piece of uh, information that, you know, again, it's anecdotal, but it does, it does suggest that, you know, there's certainly dust and wind could play a factor in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We always learn new things with outbreaks, don't we? <laughs> So Melanie, I, I know I'm, I've got a, used up a lot of time and I just have one last thing to touch on uh, sure. um, that I thought was interesting from our standpoint. So if I still have mm -hmm. some time, I will oh, do that Oh, go for now. it. Yeah. Yeah, we'd love to hear. Okay. So perhaps this is not a surprise to a lot of people in Ontario and certainly we've had some feedback since then that it, that it isn't. Some contacts into the U.S. have said similar things. Um, but what we had found in a large number of our um, uh, groups of pigs that were either infected in the nursery stage or in the early finisher stage, um, we had kind of worked off the idea that after seven, eight weeks past clinical signs that these pigs should be non-shedding and recovered and that we should be able, because we're running short of space, collectively, the industry is running short of space, they were coming to us, the CBO, and saying, can we move these pigs um, into negative premises safely? Um, so we did a lot of testing, a lot of follow-up, and said, okay, so these are, we, we, we followed up with, uh, with other, you know, in other, in other areas and say, does this seem to work? Yes, we think it, it, it should work. So we moved a lot of piglets uh, or pigs into negative premises at around the seven to eight week march, uh, mark. Some of them were a little bit sooner, um, but what we found was uh, very 
um, we did that with 16, we did it with a total of 19 premises, but really 16 were um, the finisher operations that were probably the, the ones that uh, were impacted the greatly, uh, greatly by this. And 12 of those 16 ended up coming back positive um, over the subsequent weeks, often as far out as uh, on 80 to 90 days after clinical signs. And I think there's a lot of uh, our, our further follow-up uh, with other endemic areas, especially those in Asia and Europe, um, suggested that two things. One, um, the immunity doesn't last as long as, as a lot of us might think. It can be uh, fairly short term. And this is, this is a little bit of speculation, but um, uh, this is one of the, the issues that they were suggesting to us. And the final, the other thing that they suggested, it's really, hard to get um, groups of older pigs fully infected. Um, and I think in, in our case and with the, the farms in, in Manitoba that we're dealing with that in the later stages, they watched clinical signs go through groups and said, good, that group is infected. And that's rightly what we would have assumed. Um, but there were probably was, again, our speculation is there were probably small groups within the, the larger group that just never really got fully infected. Um, and as the virus shed a little bit and built up over time, those pigs started getting, in, um, started getting it and shedding it, um, and it caused these downstream sites that we hope to keep negative actually to come back as positive. So um, we, and, and I want to stress, this was not weak positives. These were CT values, PCR CT values for PED mm. in the mid to low 20s. So this is not like in the high 30s where you might consider it a weak positive. These were actually in the mid to low 20s, so they were fairly strongly positive. Um, okay. Interestingly, not a lot of clinical signs, but enough to certainly contaminate those barns and to make them a bit of a headache to deal with. And so 12 of those 16 barns actually ended up becoming positive as a result of those downstream movements. And certainly, I think our standpoint is now, unless there can be a real um, concerted animal-by-animal animal effort to infect, um, uh, you know, older groups of pigs with PED, um, in, the assumption needs, which frankly would be very difficult to do in large-scale nurseries or finishers, um, they need to be assumed that those uh, uh, sites or those, those groups of pigs are going to be negative, or sorry, positive until they essentially go to slaughter. Um, thankfully, even when we did this downstream movement or the systems did their downstream movement to these negative premises, they took the approach that they were going to assume they were positive. So they had really good biocontainment around them and we didn't see any further spread from these operations. But it was a, a bit of a, a wake-up call to us to say, you know, this virus is going to find ways to fool you, um, as many viruses do. And uh, uh, so it, this was... Again, it may not be a surprise to, to many of the practitioners in Ontario, um, but it caught us by a bit of a surprise in this outbreak and uh, uh, certainly led to 12 of our 80 farms being uh, infected when they were, you know, uh, they, they could have been uh, negative. Frankly speaking, we probably needed the space anyway, but, uh, um, you know, we did end up with 12 additional farms that were positive as a result of these, this recurrence of shedding in older pigs. Okay, gotcha. Huh. All right. Well, thank you so much, Glenn. That was really illuminating and great, great tips for everybody um, and just good information sharing, I think, across the country. Um, was there anything else you wanted to add before we conclude? 
Um, I just uh, the last thing I would say is that the CBO and Man Manitoba's Chief Veterinary Office and the Manitoba Pork Council, uh, uh, well, along with all the industry stakeholders, way back in 2014, took the approach, actually fall of 2013, that we were going to have a collaborative effort if we ever we got hit with a major PED outbreak. Um, and again, thank you. Know, Ontario's experience was one of our abilities to build off that and really make sure we had all of us working um, at least in the same direction. I'm not going to say we're always working uh, um, towards the same ends, but uh, I think if it hadn't have been for uh, that kind of real collaborative effort, um, you know, we're still not out of this, obviously, but I, I don't think we wouldn't have been as successful as we had been to date if we hadn't had that in place. So this is not just Manitoba's Chief Veterinary Office, not just the Manitoba Pork Council, not just the individual uh, um, producers or the individual systems involved or the individual swine veterinarians. It really, um, you know, it's going to sound cliche, but it really was a team effort. And um, without that, we, we would not have been, not anywhere near as successful as we were uh, so far. Yeah, that's great. It certainly seems like the collaborative approach gets better results when everybody's working together. Yeah, that's certainly where we, we've landed with this. Great. Well, thank you so much, Glenn, uh, and have a wonderful have a wonderful day. Okay. Same to All you. Right.